But I definitely think the sort of the first step to doing that is is through conversation, listening and, and doing the small things to show that you actually care about them as a human as opposed to just an athlete. That was David Dunn. There's plenty more to come from David very soon. First, a quick thanks to Curio. This episode has been supported by Curio and you can use code SEPR30 to get 30% off unlimited listening to the best journalism as narrated on www.curio.io. And we have also placed a link in the show notes. Welcome to Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat with your hosts, David Clancy and Kieran Dunn. This is a podcast about high performance. What we are striving to achieve is to figure out what makes high-performing individuals tick, why they do what they do, and why they are successful. Enjoy a journey of stories, lessons, and learnings. Welcome to episode number 108. Today we spoke with David Dunn, performance nutritionist and CEO and co-founder of Hexus Performance. David has a stunning CV in relation to performance nutrition. He's worked with the European Tour, Oreco, British Canoeing, Bradford Bulls, Ryder Cup Team Europe, Harlequins Rugby, and the Italian Rugby Federation. He's a PhD in nutrition, behavior change, and technology. David is the co-founder of Hexus Performance, a predictive, personalized, and periodized app for nutrition, which is backed by cutting-edge science based on the premise of carb coding to meet demands of recovery and training schedules. Both Kiran and I are fans of it. In this this episode, David talks about why he left London recently, but also what took him there in the first place. David was always fascinated about performance, and he saw the massive value in nutrition at Controllable, and that's where the story begins. He shares where he fits and adds value in high-performance settings, and sheds light on specificity of roles in those environments. David talks about sleep and nighttime routines, what to do in relation to lifestyle and habits, and also beetroot juice. For David, high performance is helping a person realize what they are capable of. Thanks for joining us, David david dunn thanks a million for coming on today i normally talk to you across a dressing room or sometimes across the pond but you're back in ireland now how are you doing yeah great thanks a million for having me been it been a while since we've been in a rice slip but um yeah good to be good to be back in ireland now although it's it's not it's not that warm but yeah nice to be on familiar soil i'm not one of that dressing room conversation david <laughs> but um Look, the question I'm curious about is, uh, Kiran gave me a bit of background there. How has life been for you recently? You've had some um, experiences, let's put it that way. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, uh, I suppose, like everyone during the pandemic now, it's some days are better than others. But yeah, more recently, I, I decided to, after, well, 11 plus years, um, leave London. So I originally moved across, I suppose, as soon as I finished school. And yeah, then at the start of January this year, just decided it's it's time to go home. The way the world is at the minute, the way we can work remotely, it made sense to get back around family and 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 friends and leave London behind for a little bit while while the world figures out where it's going next. And no better time to jump into what brought you over to London in the first place. Tell us a bit about your journey that started off with nutrition and bachelors over in England. Sure, yeah. I mean, I was quite fortunate, I suppose, um, when I was younger. I, I knew what I wanted to do at a relatively young age. Um, I always wanted to work in professional sport and I had a particular interest in in nutrition. Um, and I suppose it was probably supported by I was I was better at, you know, sciences and maths at school, uh, terrible at history, awful at languages. So it was it was it was a match sort of made for me. And in Ireland at the time there was there was very few sports performance degrees. So if you wanted to work in in nutrition, you generally had to study dietetics, 
which is quite clinical and hospital based. So I made the decision to to up sticks and head across to to London to St Mary's University over in Twickenham, where I studied uh, an undergraduate in nutrition and sports science. So it was great to be able to get that exposure to both. But um, yeah, I mean that was the original move across and really enjoyed the undergraduate degree there. There's there's quite a a strong Irish collective at the the university and sort of has been for a few years. So plenty of familiar faces even from day one. And yes, was throughout throughout my degree managed to get quite a few work placements just I suppose off my own back, just going into different places and seeing how different things were set up to to build up a bit of experience on the C V before yeah, finishing up and, and sort of getting straight into it if I'm being completely honest. And and through that initial experience and kind of dip into the nutrition space, David, what was the what was the big thing that maybe made you look at it different and kind of made you realize this is, geez, this is actually something I really want to dig into for for my career. I was always fascinated by performance, like even from when I was a lot younger. You know, why were some people, you know, bigger or faster or stronger, and you know, how did some people improve? you know, at a greater rate than others. Now, obviously, when you're at school, genetics has a huge, has a huge role to play. Um, some people just go into different stages of physical development. But I, I, I was always fascinated by the concept of like what you were in control of and what you weren't in control of. So to a certain extent, your your genotype is, you know, you're, you're going to be given that, but then how you express that or or how you can develop that phenotype is, is something you are more in control of with your lifestyle behaviors and um, you know, your sleep, your nutrition, your exercise. So originally I was actually very interested in, in both, both strength and conditioning uh, as well as nutrition. Um, I think those two kind of came as a pair as I was, uh, you know, on a personal level, also trying to understand how I could manipulate my own makeup, um, as well and try to figure things out along the way. So I think it, yeah, it originally stemmed from, from quite a young age, trying to understand human performance and then, when I found out that it could be studied at university, well, well, I was made up. And like I said, I hopped across the pond straight away to to try get my teeth stuck into it. The only thing I would say now is after after a few placements, I got exposed to both the S&C and the nutrition side of things. And because I liked to still play a bit of sport myself and train, the S&C sort of took the fun out of my own training. So I kind of knocked that stuff on the head pretty quickly after sort of a few years where on my sports science degree, I was t- taking mostly S&C modules. Um, but yeah, it just it seemed to, to take a little bit of the fun out of sport from, my, from a personal level. So that kind of sort of pushed me back to say, well, nutrition actually gives me access to a really diverse range of sports. I can sort of problem solve in different ways and I can still enjoy my own sport outside of work, if that makes sense. Speaking of your sports that you went into, just to give insight, when David and I prepare for the podcast or interviewing someone, we always do a whiteboard session and look back on the experience and the history. And the whiteboard is it's full of all the clubs and places you've been. You've, you've done quite a lot. Do you want to share a bit about your experiences from, I mean, Bradford Bulls through QPR, through British fencing? Yeah, just that you, you do have a full whiteboard. Not many people pick up on Bradford or, or fencing. Um, <laughs> yeah, I suppose I was quite fortunate um, throughout throughout university. Like I said, I kind of went out and, and tried to make my own sort of opportunities for placements. So, you know, get the unpaid work 
out of the way while you're still studying. So if there's anyone who's a practitioner that's listening, I, I can't recommend that highly enough. Don't wait until you're finished your degrees to try go get experience. You know, make sure you're you're learning um, the theory and then also learning your craft and how you apply that theory side by side. It it definitely makes a big difference. But fortunately, when I finished my undergraduate degree, I, I managed to get a role pretty quickly um, within the QPR Academy and and at Bradford Bulls. So Bradford Bulls was like a day a month. I was living in London, getting getting a mega coach at the time up and down. It was about a seven hour seven hour bus journey up to Bradford. Um, wasn't the most pleasant experience, but it got me where I needed to go. And um, I suppose I would look, I was what, 21 at the time, fresh out of university. Those, you know, I definitely learned a lot more from those players and, and the organization than they probably learned from me. It was just fantastic to get in and amongst the organization. Um, actually, you know, try to apply some of what I was, what I'd learned, but then also just learn a little bit more about, you know, systems and how things were structured and you know where your place is and where your place isn't within an organization i absolutely love my time up at bradford bulls a great great bunch of characters and at the same time i was like i said i was fortunate enough to pick up a, a part-time role at qpr academy going in with their 16s to 18s and sort of helping get a few processes in place there and and both of those experiences went pretty well both very different you had one you know senior men northern big characters and then the second you kind of had um you know inner city london football youth so certainly different characters but i think that was something i really enjoyed about the process that it's a lot of the time you're you were dealing with humans not athletes or numbers and i think that gave me an appreciation pretty early that um a lot of a lot of how I need to operate as a practitioner is not as a, a vehicle for information delivery, but actually, you know, a person that can be malleable to an environment or an organization to to be what a certain person needs me to be for a conversation to help guide them to where they need to get to. So that, you know, at, at the time there was a few, there was an overlap between some of the, the support staff between QPR and British Fencing and I managed to sort of find my way into a support role across there and, and then something similar kind of happened from British fencing across to British canoeing and um, picked up a gig at Harlequins then at, at the same time as well. And yeah, it all really snowballed from there. I was, I was quite lucky. I kind of went from one or two part-time positions and, and they grew into more part-time as, as other opportunities came up and yeah, haven't looked back since, which is great. Lots of learning opportunities, I would say. And David, what's coming through there is, is, is no surprise when people that are successful look back, you know, over the career that oftentimes you're guiding, you're facilitating learning more often than not, that there's a lot there and you're just kind of trying to put a bit more light onto some something that they might already know a lot about. But you touched on some concepts that kind of echo through, let's say, behavioral change. And, you know, looking at the whiteboard, we've got that written up here about 10 times because it, it seems to be a huge piece of what's making you successful in your current practice. Um, and obviously, you know, we could even defer to Ryder Cup experience, the Open. Uh, so some lots of prestigious experience. How's that all kind of come together for you to now say like behavioral science and change is, is such a huge part of what you do? Yeah, I think it's, I mean, it, it's a fascinating topic and it's a topic I'll, I'll never know enough about. Um, 
like many other topics, but it's it's one that particularly interests me and fascinates me because, you know, we're we like to think we're quite rational creatures, and and then obviously actions and behaviors would would certainly point in another direction. I think one thing that really struck me in probably 2014, 2015, so rel- relatively early on in my career was that you know people knew what to do and they still weren't doing it. Um, so knowledge wasn't really a barrier. And I, I got a little bit frustrated early, I'd say, as well, where you know, we're spent we've spent all this time at university um reading journal articles and, and looking through publications, you know, reading books, trying to get your CPD events to to increase your overall knowledge base, but actually how you can translate that that complex science into some simple and powerful nutrition nutritional practices that are personalized to an individual that they actually are going to do is is quite difficult. And at the time I was at British Canoeing, uh, still am at British Canoeing, um, but I was with the Sprint program at the time where I'm, I'm based with Slalom now. And we were doing some stuff over social media. And, and what was quite interesting was that sometimes it wasn't necessarily the information that was helping somebody to enact a behavior. Sometimes it was just a nudge or a prompt it might have been a you know a poke in motivation through a message on a platform or another person in the group's behavior and i think that experience really sort of sparked my interest um very fortunate that i've had a, you know a mentor throughout my career and my line manager at the time is a guy called brian kniff uh ross common man originally but another irish man across the pond and, and Brian was brilliant at uh, asking me questions and not giving me any answers. Um, and I think that really helped. That really, really helped shape me over over my career. And he made an introduction to to a, a guy in, at the U, uh, UCL, professor of the engineering department. And I managed to get to speak to some different people in some different spaces who I'm doing some work with now. But I suppose at the time then it was, yeah, just, just starting to to really get my mind to tick in a different, in a different way. I think on a, on a personal level as well, it's quite easy to, it's quite easy to see like in professional sport. Now there's so many fantastic practitioners. There's so many incredibly knowledgeable people. And I think on the behavioral science piece as well, I I think I, I probably have to take a step back and understand, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to be a, you know, a, a genius physiologist. You know, I'm not going to be somebody that's that's massively lab based throughout my career, but my strength was more in working with people and understanding people. So, I think my take at the time was, you know, double down on your strength. You know, if I can get through the rest, but I'm particularly strong at, you know, helping people, um, then then that's then that's what I'll do, and that's the bit that I really love. To be honest, I I really do enjoy helping people realize what they actually can do what they are capable of that's a that's a big a big thing for me as opposed to the mechanisms of of how they can do it or what's happening from a physiological perspective that's a really important point that's not really picked up when you see nutritionist or snc coach or physiotherapist written on someone's resume it's how they can interact and how they connect with people you spoke before, I think a few years ago, or was it last year, that about being irrational, being emotional humans that we're trying to interact with, we're trying to impact and give lessons to. And you always mention that you try and build a relationship, build trust with someone. 
and you mentioned it there, how you connect with people. If you were to give practical advice to someone coming out of college or starting off a career in nutrition in any sort of healthcare, or any field that you work with someone, what would be the key principles or key, key areas you tell them to focus on to try and build that trust and relationship? Yeah, look, I, I think that's, that area, like you said, is massive. And, and you'll know from your own football background as well what it can be like when, you know, somebody walks in and they go and stick their presentation on the board and they expect you to listen to them. I, I think in all settings, and it's not just limited to sport, I think when you're working with humans in general, I just think it's important to, first of all, recognize the other person as a human. So not just as an athlete or not just as a, you know, a businessman or woman that, you know, they're a human, they'll have their own emotional needs and states, et cetera, and that maybe this isn't the most important thing in their life. And that that would be one of one of the first things I'd always try and do is yeah, try to try to recognize that and just try to when building a relationship with them, just try to find out a little bit more about them. Show them that I that I actually care and that I'm not just there to deliver information. So for me, like listening is probably one of the most the most important things for a practitioner when you're starting off. Like when you're asking somebody, you know, how are you doing? Like how are things going? Genuinely listen to their answer. Start to understand that, you know, the other areas of their life that might be impacting what they're doing, whether it's, you know, their family situation, their emotional state. Maybe they're not ready to tell you stuff yet, but don't just dive straight into well, you know, you're struggling with X, so here's you need to go and do Y. Give them a reason to have them want to listen to you. You know, make them feel like you're part of their team. But I definitely think the sort of the first step to doing that is is through conversation, listening and and doing the small things to show that you actually care about them as a human as opposed to just an athlete. And sometimes that's just the unexpected sentence, you know, knowing someone's going through exams or they've just had a young kid, you know, asking about that, you know, finding out how they're coping and, you know, just general, general chat, like a normal person um, who's supporting another person as opposed to always trying to find an angle. Yeah, that's really good. Like we had a guest on before, Michael Bungay-Stanier, who said oftentimes people just want to give advice, but to avoid the advice monster, you know, to, to wait, ask a few more questions, stay curious that bit longer and actually really listen. So it's great to hear it from kind of someone in a, in a different walk of life. Um, David, a question that we, we would both probably ask you, what we can see from your resume is uh, extensive experience in a lot of high-performing environments where you're having to be successful to stay within them, right? British canoeing, Oreco, European tour, developing of your app, all these sort of spaces where you're, digging oil and consolidating what's the advice <laughs> just asking for advice now to manage to succeed in each of those spheres because they're all important i mean some people would say do one thing well you're managing to do a multitude very well so how do you manage that um well first of all thanks thanks a million i don't know if i don't know if i'd say I, i'm managing to do a multitude of things well but um you haven't been fired yet <laughs> Yeah, I have. I haven't been binge yet. I think, yeah, I think it's a tough question. I think a lot of the time, this concept of some people feel like they need to show their worth in an organization by doing a million and one jobs and you know trying to tick all the boxes. I think the biggest thing for me has been 
trying to fit into an organization, uh, trying to understand the needs of the organization and the individuals and their situation as opposed to just telling them what to do and here's what can be done better. So I think something that's definitely worked for me is kind of, you know, we all have our own our own knowledge base. We all have our own, you know, theoretical background or underpinning of of evidence-based concepts that we're looking to, you know, uh, um, implement across certain organizations. But I think one thing that's probably gone well f- for me on a personal level has been overall, I think the main thing in those high-performance settings is um, – or one of my big lessons has been understanding where I fit and where I can add value, not overstepping the mark to pretend like I know more than I do and, and be a valuable member of the team. That's also willing to help out in areas that don't fall under my, my remit because, you know, a lot of times some people, you know, a lot of time people can go into roles and go, well, I can do this. Um, but actually I'm, you know, I'm paid to be this type of person. So I don't need to clean the shakers, fill the bottles. I don't know, lift these boxes up four flights of stairs for whatever reason. Sometimes those small things make a massive difference. It's just being part of a team. It's just, you know, just doing work to to help that machine keep moving. And I think those, those small gestures can actually, can actually go a long way in, in terms of people wanting you to be around and, and people appreciating a little bit more that you're you're there for the bigger picture, not just to go in and tick your own box on your own agenda, if that makes sense. Yeah, it definitely does. And hat tip for you, because it takes a certain amount of humility to be able to do it as well, um, to put the organization first. With the places that you've worked and looking at the whiteboard here, um, you've worked in a lot of elite settings. Has there been any one or two that have really impressed you about their culture? And if so, what were the aspects of that culture? Yeah, this is a great question. I, I think every environment has its own unique culture. Um, I think one thing that's become apparent over the years has been the differences in in some cultures between elite Olympic sports uh, or individual sports and and team sports. I think you know you can work in a team sport environment where there's a very good culture, but sometimes the emotional states can be so heavily affected week to week by outcomes of, of fixtures. Uh, it can become, become quite tough. But I think in terms of the certain environments that I've been in that have been particularly successful, I think of, of organizations like, like British Canoeing and the athletes have a you know, high degree of autonomy. And I think that's, that's, been, that's been awesome. You know, it's not a coach telling an athlete you have to do this. It's actually a coach, an athlete, and psychologist, a, you know, a nutritionist sitting down and and piecing the plan together based on what the coach thinks is best, what the athlete feels is best for them, and uh, and actually having that really collaborative approach to to problem solving and performance planning. Um, I think that that's something that's definitely stood out to me out of all the organizations has been. Yeah, the, the collaborative efforts, not just between interdisciplinary members of a sports science and medicine team, but actually directly with the athletes and giving the, the athletes their their say and to, to lead to lead themselves. I think that that's been something that has been been pretty cool over the last few years because you don't see that in, in every environment. 
some environments it can be a more top-down approach coach says x you know player does y uh, and some environments i would say there is some some really cool some really cool uh cultural elements so looking back to 2018 and, and the Ryder cup you know those those guys are all professionals coming in but again they they had quite a high degree of autonomy and we were very much there to support them as opposed to you know the staff are saying you should do this you have to do this so i think one thing that stood out in terms of that culture is that mutual respect both ways you know the coach for the athlete the athlete for the coach but that respect actually translating into having a seat at the table when it comes to deciding how things will be done um and everyone buying into that i think that that's probably been something that's particularly successful over the over the years that i've seen or what a perfect example of it then the Super Bowl with Bruce Arians and Tom Brady and the relationship clearly that goes both ways and both men can lead, but also take a passenger seat in, in what drives the organization. So echoes to the, to the Super Bowl champs there. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. It's, and it's also weird to think how in some organizations, you know, whether it's ego driven or whether it's lack of knowledge driven or whether there are certain athletes that don't have the personality to want to do it. But it's, it's weird to think in some places it doesn't happen and it's still top down. You know, because I just think, you know, and I'm sure you'll find the same from your experience, like at an elite level, you know, people have to feel like they belong to that organization. They have to have an attachment and a drive and want to achieve something, not just for themselves, but, you know, also for the people around them. Big inside out sort of model. Absolutely. David, just like to touch on maybe experience before we dig into your knowledge, expertise on nutrition, but... um Adversity and challenge are obviously a huge part in any story of high performance more often than not. Has there been any moment and experience maybe that caught you off guard and uh, you weren't expecting it and you had to kind of figure it out quickly? Maybe something didn't go to plan or there was a hurdle in front of you and kind of what did you do? What were the principles you, you brought to light to get through that period? Yeah, I mean, I get caught off guard all the time. Um, yeah, doing think, okay here. <laughs> yeah, I think I think a lot of it is, uh, I suppose, how you react. We, we've all got certain tools in our toolbox that we know we can we can use to to craft a solution in a, in a given situation. But one thing that definitely jumps out to me over the last few, well, my whole career, and probably something that's helped shape my career is actually talking to to one of the guys at, at Harlequins, um, sort of during my my earlier days. I remember sitting down and we'd mapped everything out. Everything was, you know, we'd had a few consultations. We had, we'd been back and forth on WhatsApp. We had our solutions laid out. He was happy with the plan. You know, everything seemed to make sense. And I remember going in one day and I mean, what, what he said just really took me back and sort of knocked me for six, which was, he just looked at me and was like, I know what to do. I just don't want to do it. Like, I'm not going to do it. And then you kind of go, right, this this man has everything. There's there's no obvious barrier to what I could see at that moment in time. And that one just made me sort of reevaluate the whole of what I was doing. Um, and that did help spark me actually going down the PhD route to start to explore behavior and these other elements to try piece this together because – at that time in my career, I come from the university model of well, we have this information, we'll deliver this information, and and then they'll have a plan, and then they'll know how to do the plan. They'll 
they'll understand it and they'll go and do it. And and when that doesn't translate, it does make you reevaluate, like, what are we doing here? If I am putting together these presentations or we're having these conversations, what's missing? And that one, less less adversity more than anything else, but more of a deep questioning of, as a practitioner, what am I actually doing? And if fundamentally we're trying to change how people, well, people's dietary behaviors, why don't we know the best way to impact them? And that was definitely something that pushed me down the PhD route. And, and I suppose my reaction was less of a, I have a solution for you. It was, a, I need to go away and figure this out. But, you know, that particular person is a very good friend of mine. And, um, you know, we still speak relatively regularly. And, you know, it's just a massive learning curve for me. And, and again, sort of saying like, you know, a lot of times in, in these different environments and organizations, if there is something, let's say it's, a situation that catches you off guard it's sometimes they're the best learning opportunities because they maybe just highlight something to you that that probably should have been obvious at a younger age or at an earlier stage and make you actually go and do something about it so yeah if, if he ever listens to this um it'll be yeah he's already aware i'm sure about it um yeah fascinating fascinating to see for me personally as well how i've changed on the back of of that experience and even the, the approaches i take you know, there's there's some things that are innate that stay, and then there's other things that, you know, you you just have to to go back to the drawing board and and figure out a more robust solution. For everybody listening, that's the a perfect analogy of David Dunn is the bounce back from a setback is to go and do a PhD and <laughs> learn even more. And we'd be shocked if we didn't ask a few nutrition questions when we have a performance nutritionist with your experience on the show. So we might do a quick bit of a quick fire. Um, maybe try catch off guard one or two. I'm going to test them out a bit early. My first one, I'll start off with beetroot juice. You introduced us to it over in London when we were playing gearing up for championship. It really helps performance. What would you say to a club person or someone like that? How would they use it? Why is it good for them? Yeah, yeah. I think it's beetroot juice can be a really good source of dietary nitrates. And we know that when we consume dietary nitrates, maybe the you know in the few days prior to or a few hours prior to uh an event, it can actually reduce the oxygen cost of exercise. So, um, again, when we look at sports like Gaelic football, that can translate into some nice performance improvements on the pitch. I think the biggest thing I would say is if it's somebody is considering looking at something like this, they should certainly look at the other areas of their diet first to see, are they getting their fueling right more generally? Um, are they consuming enough carbohydrate to fuel for the, the type the intensity and the duration of the activity that they're doing. And if they are happy with their plan and they feel like that's optimized, then maybe adding in these additional performance solutions might might give them the extra couple of couple of percent. And like I said, yeah, helping in those instances, I suppose, improve performance by reducing the oxygen cost of that exercise and, and maybe enhance how they feel on the pitch or during a race for them. But uh, my, my one caveat is, and as I'm sure you, you're well aware, uh, the taste is acquired. Um, I certainly wouldn't wouldn't expect somebody to to have a couple of beetroot shots and absolutely love it. But just be aware it's it's pretty earthy. And maybe one thing that you know not many people are aware of is that it actually is really important to have bacteria in your mouth when you are consuming dietary nitrates. So if you brush your teeth and then have your your beetroot shot, or you have some chewing gum or some mouthwash and then have your beetroot shot, it can can massively impact the effectiveness 
as a reduction needs to take place in your mouth. So yeah, if you're if you're performing early in the morning and you plan on taking some beetroot shots, you know, I don't know, two to four hours before you go out, then my only caveat might be you might not want to brush your teeth that morning and and just have have some mouthwash or you know something ready to to freshen you up after the event. And David, just to borrow the words from Dan Lawrence, the everyday athlete, for those of us who are curious about the breakfast of champions and the best nightcap, is it celery juice in the morning? Is it eggs Benedict? Is it tart cherry in the evening? Where do you lie in terms of the everyday person for a good breakfast and ideal setup to go into your deep sleep? Yeah, I mean, if we're if we're looking at at sleep in and of itself, it's funny, probably my, my biggest solution for sleep is probably not a nutritional recommendation. It's more of a lifestyle recommendation. If we look at sleep as a whole, our bodies are incredibly clever pieces of kit and our circadian rhythm will dictate a lot of our sleep-wake cycles. And really what we want to try to do is, is work to build a really solid routine. So it might be less about what we have more of and more about what we have less of. So what I mean is... You know, if we can avoid having incredibly large meals before bed, one, that might help. But actually, if we can reduce the light in our room, um, that can have an impact on on keeping us awake. If we can reduce our exposure to phones and the blue light that might suppress melatonin, um, we can decrease the temperature in our room so it's a cool environment and maybe get into a, a regular routine with a regular bedtime then our body might be in a more optimal state. And then if we do have those things in place, then we can look at, you know, what might then help promote sleep. And actually one thing I'm a big fan of, and this is some research done by a friend of mine who's who's now over in America, a guy called uh, Craig Turner. He did a study where he looked at some Academy Premier League footballers and the impacts of a warm shower 30 minutes before bed. And it actually helped to improve improve sleep onset latency or the amount of time taken to fall asleep but in essence a warm shower 30 minutes before bed can cause a drop in our core temperature so as the warm water hits our skin when we get out of the shower our body's natural reaction is to try cool down and as a result it causes that drop in core temperature and actually puts our body in a a much better position to to fall asleep so sometimes the simple tricks um are better than the clever solutions or potions that that some people might try to concoct to knock them off. Um, but yeah, I, I would definitely go down those sort of lifestyle and habitual route for sleep for sure. Speaking of the lifestyle and the habits, and it's a good position to move on to what you're doing at the moment. Um, you've, you're developing an app that myself and David have been fortunate to get a taster of, and it's been used by professional athletes around Europe, around the world at the moment. Hexus app. So I have two questions about it. One, would you tell us, what the idea is behind it, carb coding, give us a bit of insight. And second, where did you get the name? I'd be impressed if it's from Aristotle. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, so, look, I'm very fortunate again, like I said, I've said it a few times already, collaboration, I'm a massive fan of. I was really fortunate to be introduced to um, a guy called Dr. Rodrigo Mazura, uh, who's a data scientist. Xiao Shi Yan is a medical statistician. Carmen Levevre Lewis, behavioral scientist. And, and Dr. Sam Impey, um, again, another exercise physiologist, uh, and, and Brian, who I mentioned earlier. We've been working together, really, to build build Hexus. And at the core of, 
of the Hexus app is this carb coding framework, which is is really a, a unique tool or intelligence system that we've built that can convert your the type, the intensity, and the, the duration of your training into a simple, easy to hear, easy to adhere to uh, meal planning solution. So we use a carb coding framework or a you know a low, medium, and high traffic light system to help periodize your intake according to your activity. And I mean, we've had some great fun building that and that that's ongoing, but really hoping, like you said, to get that in more people's hands soon. We ran a trial before Christmas and, and managed to get it in over a thousand athletes' hands, which was which was great. But yeah, carb coding in a nutshell, adjusting your intake to your activity. We've just got a great team that's that's built a pretty clever algorithm that can that can do that and then also convert that recommendation into some some real food examples and some some tasty recipes you can give a go to hexus i suppose to answer your second question um yeah you're right it, it wasn't off the back of a fag packet um at the time it, it actually comes from a greek word so it was used more by without getting too philosophical actually i don't know how to avoid that in this situation um uh, yeah it's it's a word used by Aristotle uh, in Greek mythology to describe a stable arrangement or disposition with regards to somebody's health, knowledge, or character. So really, for us, it was about you know building a solution that could help people be comfortable under different scenarios and actually still still have the the behaviors they needed to to maintain and sustain their health. You know whether they're going to perform at a high level during a day of complete rest, ill whatever the modif- modification of that may be. You were right, Kieran. <laughs> Beam in here, David. I was um, going to say, yeah, I, I, good man, Donner. <laughs> um, look, lovely piece there, touching on philosophy, ethos, culture, comes nicely to uh, the final piece, the pod here, David, which is quite simply, what does high performance mean to you? Oh, that's a good question. Um, for me personally, if I was to say high performance, I think it means something different to different people. I think you know the natural instinct for me would be to to pigeonhole it into a an elite sports setting, but but I don't believe it is that. I actually believe it's it's on a very individual basis, and for me as a practitioner, high performance can be just helping someone feel better at work. And, you know, feeling happier and healthier about the lifestyle they live. Or it can be, you know, going out on a Sunday morning and and being fueled and primed, you know, for, you know, the last round of, of a Ryder Cup singles game. So for me, it's quite individual. And, and I actually think it comes back to helping a person realize what they're capable of. Is, is probably where I'd circle high performance back to um, and each individual has a different ceiling. So I think we'd have to contextualize it back to helping that person realize. Big shout out to Team Europe. Come on, Porig, make it happen. <laughs> David Dunn, from the two of us here, obviously Kiran knows you really well. We'd like to say thanks very much for giving us your time, your expertise and, and your fascinating stories. We've, we both really enjoyed it. So Stay fit, stay stay safe, and please stay in touch. Brilliant. Thanks for having me. Cheers, David. All the best. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat, a story of high performance. 
This was brought to you by Howora, a whole person wellbeing company founded and run from Dublin, Ireland. Find out more at howoralife.com, spelt H-A-U-O-R-A life.com. Please rate, review and share the podcast. Some people want it to happen. Some wish it would happen. Others make it happen. The GOAT, Michael Jordan. <laughs>